Now, our next speaker needs no introduction. He's one of our church elders, and he's a veteran, a policeman, and a mighty man of God. James Neal, come and bring us a word, brother. Isn't it great that there's heroes like that right here amongst us? <laughs> and there's some others, too. My dad was my hero. He was bigger than life to me. And he was gone most of the time I was growing up, but he would come back. And he, he was a career professional soldier. And uh, he was in World War II and the Korean War. And in 1962, he retired from the Army, and I went into the Army in 63, and I joined the Army two days before Kennedy was killed. And the reason I joined the Army is because I had just turned 17 30 days before, and I kind of had an attitude and I was starting to cause a little trouble. I didn't cause too much trouble because I was too afraid of my dad. So my dad sent me off to the U.S. Army. And I can't say what the Army is now. I don't know. I don't have anything bad to say, but I know what the Army was then. And uh, they had this thing about them that they would, they did this all the time. They they would give instructions, and then they would say, are there any questions? Nobody said anything. And then they would say, there better not be. <laughs> what does that mean? It's, see, that's how the ministry's supposed to be, isn't it? Just, I'll tell you. We need to pray about that. <laughs> and I had one first sergeant. We all stood at attention, the whole company, and he walked down the sidewalk very slowly and took a walk and came up to this. He didn't need a, a microphone. <laughs> and he gave us instructions. And then he added a little caveat to it. He said, are there any questions? He said, there better not be, or I'll break every bone in your body. <laughs> so... so Obviously, I didn't ask no questions. <laughs> so I went to basic training, and it was difficult. But I had this thing going. My dad told me when I left, uh, when I left home to go into the Army, he was giving me instructions. And by the way, my dad was not somebody you want to trifle with, okay? I'm just telling you. Uh, anyway, he, he said, oh, by the way, don't come back here and tell me you couldn't cut it. Well, I was more afraid of my dad than I was the drill instructors, let's put it that way. In fact, of anybody in the U.S. Army. And uh, so anyway, I joined and I wanted to, I wanted to be in the Airborne. And... Perhaps someone here was, I don't know. But I, so I was taking the training for the Airborne to sign up. And this special forces guy was conducting the training. 
and while we're doing the exercises, and I mean, I was 17 years old, I could run forever. I, I, I never got tired. There was nothing they could do to hurt me. You know, I had nothing, I owned nothing. I, I was 17 years old. I couldn't believe they fed us three times a day. I mean, this was a step up for me, you know what I'm saying? So, and I'd already been in the Army all my life because of my dad. And so, anyway, this Special Forces guy, and he was a bad dude, I could tell. He said, Neil, where's Neil? That would be me. I said, right here, sir. And he comes over to me, and he kicked me. I'm laying on the ground, and he kicked me. And said, get out of here. And I, I thought for a moment about getting up and fighting him. But it was only that much. <laughs> you know, as, as stupid as I was then, I wasn't that stupid. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, uh, and then about three weeks into basic training, I know I probably told you all this before, but they let us go out and play football. Well, I was a boy in a man's world. And I was used to getting my way about things. So, and I, I thought I was pretty tough. I mean, after all, I weighed 128 pounds soaking wet. <laughs> you know, dynamite comes in small packages. You know, well, I wish I could do that now. <laughs> so we went out to play football. I made the mistake of catching that football. What was I thinking? I caught it. I'm running. I'm just, oh. And I looked up, and here came three brothers, big dudes. They came, and I could see what was going to happen. I mean, it'd take a rocket scientist, and I tried to get shut of that football, but it didn't do no good. They tackled me and retackled me, and I limped off the field. I was kind of shuffling. I didn't feel like a tough guy then. <laughs> but. The second day, no, the first night there, they took our blood test. I had a perfectly good sermon to preach. I'm talking about all this stuff. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach in here in a minute. So they were going to test our blood so, so they could put their blood type on our dog tags. And so the guy that tests our blood, he's got this little, breaks this little glass, and he don't just prick your finger. He just goes like that. I mean, pretty much ripped my finger open. And, and there was these two cowboys standing there. And they were laughing at me and my partner because we were the same size. And what are you going to do when they put that 50-pound pack on your back? Well, I know what I would do. I would do just fine because I didn't have any money to have a car. So everywhere I went, I had to run. <laughs> Solved a lot of problems can't go on a date if you don't have a car, and I didn't have a car. So I had to jog everywhere I went. So I was used to it. So we endured that. But then when it came their turn and he pricked that big cowboy's finger, he fell flat on his back and passed out. <laughs> so it turned out that was good because the next thing they did, they sent me to leadership school. 
Isn't that something? 17 years old. And they brought us in this big auditorium. And they had each of us in there put down the name of who they thought would be a leader. And do you know they selected me of all people? I don't know why. I mean, go figure. So, anyway, they made me a squad leader. Well, I got fired. <laughs> well, they wanted me to turn everybody's bunk over and tear their bunks up. As part of the being a, a leader, you got to harass people, I guess. And I didn't refuse to do it. I just didn't do it. I didn't get around to it. So I got fired. <laughs> so, so when I made sergeant in the police department, I was the same there as I was back then. And, but you know, at the end of the day, I got the same, I got the same cooperation as anybody else. So anyway. Uh, and then they were going to send me to Vietnam. And I wanted to be a hero like John and my dad, and I had no concept of danger or death or injury. I didn't have any concept of that. After all, I had my mom praying for me. I mean, how could I get in any kind of real trouble with my mom and my grandmother praying for me? You know, they set me up's what they did. <laughs> yeah. I had plans. So I had numerous opportunities to be sent to Vietnam. And every one of them was thwarted. And finally, we, I was in this 17th field hospital and we did six weeks of extra, extra training. I drove the Jeep down to the seaport and they sent it off. I sent my duffel bag off. I've never seen it again, by the way. and. Uh, so I'm sitting, we're all sitting in this room, this whole company, we're all sitting in this big room waiting for the buses to come get us. And I'm sitting over in the back, huddled down, thinking that God would not find me. <laughs> and, and so the buses are getting closer, and a guy comes to the door and he says, Neil, where's Neil? Right here, come with me, your orders have been changed. I said, God, you can't do this to me. <laughs> I want adventure, I want to, and you know what the Lord wanted me to do? Just what I'm doing right now. And I'm not saying that other people couldn't do that. I'm not saying, I'm just saying in my case, I don't know what would have happened. Uh, but, I finished my time in the Army, and I came home, but I stopped in California to a small church and preached three days, came back and started preaching. My first sermon was on the street corner, and all these years I've had the opportunity to preach the Word of God. And then the Lord led us here, and, and I've had an opportunity through the years to help out in the preaching of the ministry. So I'm not, I do not regret that. I wouldn't do anything to change that. And so 
I, I, I want to talk about the heroes of faith. And I have a short sermon to preach to you, and, and it pretty much comes from 1 Samuel, the 13th chapter, and it's about this guy named Jonathan. And I preached from the 14th chapter, I think about 15 years ago here at the church, at our church. But anyway, I, when I look at the life of Jonathan, this is really a unique guy. Really a, something different about this fellow than a lot of the other people because of what he does. And, and first, to kind of lay the groundwork with Israel, Samuel had been the prophet, the leader, the judge. And he was a man of God. And he had power with God. When he went to Bethlehem to, to anoint, subsequently to anoint David king, when he got to that town, you know what those people did? The Bible says they trembled. That's the kind of guy this was. That's the way it's supposed to be. The influence of God in him caused people to tremble. And so we find that the, the people decided they wanted a king. Samuel got old. His sons weren't doing right. So the people wanted a king. But really what they wanted, and Samuel nailed them for it, was a guy named Nahash, an Ammonite, came forward and decided that he wanted, he had a border dispute and he wanted his land back that God had given Israel after they came out of Egypt. This is not the first time that this Ammonite spirit came up. It had arisen, this incursion had arisen many years before. How is it? You know what it's like when an old enemy comes back. When an old enemy rears its head in your life. And that enemy has to be defeated. I remember a year or two ago, Alan was preaching a sermon. And he was talking about the enemies. And like the enemies that we had after the Second World War. The enemies had to be defeated. Amen. Not appeased. Not just coddled. But you have to defeat an enemy. So if the, if the enemy of our soul comes against us, he would like for us to compromise and not really be defeat the enemy. You can't argue with a drunk. You can't do it. Lord knows I've tried many times. And... One day there was three of us and we're arguing with this drunk. And we're talking and we're arguing. And all of a sudden my partner I was working with and I was on nights, deep nights. He just goes over there and just grabs the guy. Come with me. You can't argue with a drunk. When, when the enemy comes against you and an old enemy rises up in your life, there's only one thing to do and that is to defeat that enemy. Get rid of it. And so Samuel anoints Saul. 
to be the king. But Saul did not have what it took. Let's see, how would I say that? What would be a really nice way to say that? There really is no nice way to say it. He didn't have what it took to do the job. He could have, but he failed God. The first he had first he had one good victory, and then after that it kind of went downhill from there. So we find that Israel is faced with this enemy. And this enemy wants this land back, and he had a deal. He said, if I got a deal for you, you give me the land back, and I'm going to gouge out all of your, your right eye. That's just to start with. That's exactly what the enemy offers you and me. That's the best he has to offer, not the worst. He wants to spiritually gouge out our eye. What kind of a cruel thing is that? I don't like cruel people. The purpose was to disgrace and humiliate the people of God. You know, this change in government from Samuel to Saul, I want to say that in our country, and I'm not going to stand up here and waste your time and mine talking ugly about one political party or another. I have, I have no time for that. Uh, we all know what's going on. We can see, but when, when a, a government changes hands, the enemies, the people who are expansionists and who are enemies and don't like us, they will start testing us and probing us to see what we will do and what we will put up with. So a boundary dispute. When I read this story, I thought if this isn't the 21st century, I don't know what it is. It's just like it is today, a boundary dispute. Look at the boundary disputes that's going on in the South China Sea. That's exactly what it is. And some guys wants to stand up and take over the whole, that part of the world just like this guy did. It's nothing new. It's an old enemy. This same Ammonite people, they tried this once before, many years before, and they called on a guy by the name of Jephthah. You know, he was a hero of faith. He's listed as a hero of faith. And they called on him, and he was very articulate. He was a, a master military strategist. He knew he was a politician, I guess you could say. He knew how to manage people. And he tried to reason with them. See, you can't reason with the devil. It ain't going to work. The devil will lie to you. Yes, can you imagine that? <laughs> Just like people. Anyway. Finally, Jephthah sent a letter to him, to the Ammonites. And he said, will you not take what your God, small g, Chemosh, that's the name of their God. The Philistines' God was Dagon. The Ammonites was Chemosh. Will you not take what Chemosh, your God, gives you? Likewise, 
whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. Well, three things that the enemies of the Lord have in common. Three things, at least three things. Number one, they are idolaters. They worship other gods. And we just kind of skip over that, but just that in itself is a big deal. That's against the rules, God's rules. They are idolaters. They hate Israel. And they hate the God of Israel. Let's just get that straight right now, okay? It's not all, all the religions are all going to come together in the end, and it's all going to work out. Well, it's going to work out okay for the people of the Lord because he's the creator. We didn't create him. He created us. We're only here because he said we could be here. He gave us life. He saved us. He delivered us. You want to be inclusive? Some people say God is not inclusive. Well, he's, he's inclusive, but then he's exclusive. He's inclusive in that all may come to salvation. But he's exclusive in the fact that you can't come to the Father but by the Son. You can't just amble your way up with your own religion and your own ideas. No, when you go to God, you've got to go to him his way through the Son, the Son of God. Hallelujah. So we find in the 13th chapter, Jonathan. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Now, this is the first time we're going to even become acquainted with Jonathan. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Jonathan, the son of Saul. And it says in the third chapter, Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost. First day on the job. Right out of the hat. That's what you do. You obey the Lord and you do what the Lord says. You see, the Ammonites, they saw an opportunity. They were... I think on the west or east, and the Philistines were on the other end. This was their chance to make their play. And this thing was already in action. And then Jonathan shows up, and he attacked the Philistine outpost at Gibeah. And the Philistines heard about it. Yeah, they heard about it. News gets around fast, doesn't it? Then Saul had a trumpet blown throughout the land and said, I don't know why he did that. I've just got to be honest with you. I guess I could come up with some answer, but a trumpet? Why do we have to waste our time with frivolous things? Jonathan attacked the outpost. It was a time for war. So he blows a trumpet throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel 
heard the news, Saul had attacked the Philistine outpost. Excuse me, I thought Jonathan did that. Did I not read that right? It didn't go down that way, did it? And now Israel, now here's what caught my attention. And now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. Wait a minute now. Shouldn't the Israelites have always been a stench to the Philistines? What's going on here? It looks like to me that, that, that Jonathan, when he started poking the bear and when he started letting the hornets loose, the hornet's nest, he was doing God's will because God wanted the Israelites to be a stench to the Philistines, not just to be a go along, get along. You know, play the game. They're going to straighten out eventually. It's all going to end up okay. After all, this is America. Really? I think Israel had become a stench to God because their testimony was almost gone. And now this incident has happened to stir them up and God wants to do a miracle. And this miracle that he wants to do is going to go all the way up through to Goliath. This is what's starting. God's doing something in the land today. Did y'all know that? God is doing something. And it's going to go God's way. I've talked to my friends me and Mark McGlathry, we were talking the other day about it. What should we do? Should we fight? Should we? What is, should be our, our stance in this day in which we live? And I got to tell you something. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. But if we're going to fight the good fight of faith, I'm not sure what all God wants us to do. But I do know this. I know that he always wants us to be faithful to him. Whatever that means, whatever that, in whatever situation we are in. So, Jonathan's actions seemed haphazard, but they were well thought out. So anyway, he has stirred up this hornet's nest, Jonathan has. He did what he's supposed to do. And I, I still look at this and I'm like, I, I don't see any pre-planning. I don't see any special equipment. I, I don't see any, any, uh, any kind of a battle, a battle strategy or anything. No. He just attacks them. First day, he shows up. Where are they? Okay, see y'all. And he attacks them. Well, it says the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with the Philistines now had 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. I've always wondered where these people come from. In our, in our Bible stories, there's just jillions of them. You ever notice that? Gideon had, what, 300? And Saul... He started off with a pretty good number, but it's going to dwindle before it's all over. Well, they went up and camped 
at Michmash, east of Avon. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, here's what they did. Here's what the people of God did who had the oracles of God, who had the prophet's word, who had a history of a relationship with God. They hid in caves and thickets and rocks and pits and cisterns. Some even ran across the Jordan to another land. Saul remained at Gilgal, and the troops with him were quaking with, with fear. He waited seven days, the time by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. So some prearranged time was set by Samuel for Saul to wait before he would get there and he would offer the sacrifice. And so when Saul saw all that was going on and the people were leaving him, he, out of desperation, offered this sacrifice and then Samuel shows up and says, what have you done? Well, you know, I I saw the men were scattering. We don't want people to scatter, do we? We want people to come in, not scatter. And you didn't come at the set time. And so Samuel said, you acted foolishly. Well, Samuel went to Gilgal up to Gibeah in Benjamin and Saul counted the men that were with him and they numbered 600 and they weren't ever going to be any more than that. There were 600. I don't care how many times Saul counted them, there were still 600 and they were nowhere near enough and their situation was critical. When somebody tells me, when I hear that word critical, I think that's a really bad deal. I had a friend one time that he came, to, we were talking to him, and, and he's, something was said about his wife, and so she's not feeling too good. And I said, well, what's going on? Oh, she got shot in the head. <laughs> A bullet came through the wall and shot her in the, shot her in the head. And, but, you know, she's, she's doing all right, and not too, feeling too good, though. And I, <laughs> I, said, I said, Charles. Tell me more. What's wrong? What? Where is she? Is she in the emergency room? No. I said, is she in a ditch somewhere? Do we need to summon a paramedic or a clergyman? I mean, no, she's all right. That, that's not critical. When, when somebody's critical, you know they're critical. They're in critical condition. Their situation was critical. Have you ever had a critical situation? in your life. Man, something's going to have to change or else. I just can't go on like this. I can't stand another day with this happening, this situation. On and on it goes. Yeah, this is not new. People live in situations. And so, uh, anyway, It says here that there were, in verse 
19, there was not a blacksmith to be found in Israel. They went down to the Philistines to get their plowshares and mattocks and tools and stuff sharpened. So on the day of battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan could had a sword or a spear in his hand, only Saul and his son. So here is a standing army, and they are up against probably the greatest army around, and all they have are slingshots and maybe bow and arrow. How can, the, how can you wage war like that? I read an article one time about this new battle, this new aircraft carrier we were making. And I felt sad. I felt sad because, yeah, that's a really great tool. But that's not going to heal the soul of a nation. I'm going to tell you something, friends. I'm not a radical, uh, well, I'm not radical about anything hardly, but I, but I, I think this. I think that if this country, the United States of America, if we would at this point in time, regardless of what's going on, if we would turn our hearts to God, and really repent and come together. If we can't come together on anything else, if we can come together on who God is and who he is in our life, it would change everything overnight. It, it would change. I think they call that revival. Or, you know, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Restoration. Revival. God help us. So, by the way, Psalms 68, you don't have to turn there. I have cleverly written that down here, so you would not have to. But in Psalm 68, it's one of my favorite Psalms in the whole Bible. It, the first chapter says, may, the first verse, may God arise and may his enemies be scattered. <laughs> Come on. We used to sing that song, let God arise and his enemies be scattered. And there was a visiting evangelist there behind me and he was saying, let God arise, arise and his enemies be splattered. <laughs> okay, whatever. You know, because when God arises in any situation, a family, a job, a nation, it is a game changer. It's what needs to happen. Yeah. Hallelujah. So when, when Jonathan, first day on the job, he goes and he attacks the Philistine outpost, that was God arising in a person's life. Hallelujah. But then in this same chapter, I found this because of a verse I was reading. In verse 20, it says, our God is a God who saves. I like that. That's just got a good sound to it, doesn't it? It covers all the bases. But I got to noticing something. In verse 17, now remember that the Philistines had 3,000, wasn't it? 3,000 chariots and 6,000 charioteers. 
3,000, that means they had a guy driving and a guy fighting. That's what we call, in my line of work, that's what they call a two-man unit. And nobody that I know of in any city has a budget that can support a two-man unit. Why these people? Where do these people come from? Where does their money come from? That's a lot of chariots. Well, whoop de do. Hope that's not something bad. Verse 17, the chariots of God are tens of thousands. Come on. And then you turn the page and thousands of thousands. So what if they got 3,000 chariots? God's got a whole lot more chariots than they have. Hallelujah. Our God is a God who saves. Hallelujah. May God arise. Hallelujah. Well, so what does Jonathan do now? I wonder if Saul ever, now I'm not going to preach something that's out of the text, but I can't help but wonder if Saul ever thought, you know, what is with this kid? He really stirred things up when he did this. I wonder what he told his friends. He's impulsive, you know. He, you never know what he's going to do next. And uh, it reminds me of my son. You know, he, I come home one day, and he's crying because he slid down a slide. I mean, he was about four, three or four. He had a stick in his mouth. Slid down the slide head first with a stick in his mouth. So, you know, and then I took him to the doctor, and the doctor said, well, what he did was he performed half of a tonsillectomy. <laughs> That's how kids are, you know. They just do stuff. They do things. Yeah. I took him to the lumber yard one time, and there was a whole row of Bathroom implements, toilets, bathtubs. He told me he had to use the restroom. I, I wasn't thinking. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I got there just in time, okay? <laughs> Jonathan knew what he was doing. He was doing what God told him to do. And there's really no fanfare. There's no big to-do over it. He just went out and did what had to be done. So what does he do now of all things? Well, in the, in the 14th chapter, he turns right around and he goes right over to the Philistine outpost with his armor bearer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he hadn't had enough. He was going to do more. He goes over and... He said to his armor bearer, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or few. Isn't that something? We don't care how many there are. The, the, the fact that they were as numerous as the sand by the, the seashore, that didn't make any difference to Jonathan. He said God can save no matter how many there are. And then he said, perhaps... It says in my Bible here, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Perhaps. I guess that was good enough for Jonathan. You know, early in my career, 
I got called one time to go with these two county guys, people, to a lady's house, and they had an order, a writ of, I think it was a writ of possession, I think, or something. And they were going to confiscate, or they were going to take custody of this little baby that had all kinds of tubes and stuff in it and everything. And, and I mean, it was a legal move. It was a civil move, though. And I was a rookie. And I didn't know how it worked. And so here I am in a uniform, so I'm representing the city. And I didn't need to be there. It had nothing to do with the criminal action. So I was kind of concerned about it. And, I, and we're standing at the door, knocking on the door, and I asked the guy, I leaned over, I said, what, what kind of authority do you have on this? And he turns to me and said, oh, it's a bluff. <laughs> I said, a bluff? You called me up here on a bluff? I don't operate on a bluff. It's almost like this word, perhaps. Perhaps, maybe the Lord will help us. I'd like to have a little more than that. But you know what? He had confidence in God. I know he did. Well, they climbed up. Oh, he, he spoke to these people. And he said, Jonathan said, come on, we'll cross over. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will say where, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come to us, we will climb up because that will be the sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. I've read this and read it and read it over again. I've read it in other translations. To me, it's going to be a fight either way. They're either going to come down there and jump on you or you're going to go up there and there's going to be a fight. So I don't know. I don't understand this strategy. But anyway, either way, we're going to fight. So they showed themselves. They said, come on up. We'll teach you a lesson. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come on up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. But you know what? When he went over there, he didn't tell his dad he was going because he would have stopped him. So anyway, they go up there, and the first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in that area. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and fled, and those in the outpost and raiding parties. That's terrorist, terrorist groups. And the ground shook. God did that. And it was a panic sent by God. I'm going to quit preaching. Friends, God was on their side. God is on our side. That's really what I want to hear. God is on your side. Do you believe that? You know, I want to say that again. Everyone here, within the sound of my voice, I want to say to you, God is on your side. If God be for us, who could be against us? Now, if God is not for us, that's a whole different ballgame. But God is on our side. And we are entering into a day when we need courage and strength from God Almighty. And this man, Jonathan, this hero, this hero of the faith, he, he had many attributes. And I, I wrote a little narrative here. 
And I'll close with this. The story of Jonathan is remarkable, yet he was never called to office. He was known only as the eldest son of Saul and later the father of Mephibosheth. He knew he would never succeed his father. He knew that. As a king, but was best friends with David, even when David was anointed king. Jonathan was the true warrior for God. He was a man of humility and courage. He remained faithful and loyal and died, even died in battle with his father. He was loyal. You know, our country has a large laundry list of people who were always faithful, always courageous leaders that we could be proud of. And we have a wonderful country. And let's just continue to pray for our country and, and be supportive and just pray that God will intervene in the affairs of our country. And God bless each and every one of you. Let's stand. Lord, help us to be Jonathans. Amen? Help us to be Jonathans. Brave warriors, but humble. Man, what a hero. What a hero.